The following Rarecast podcast is made possible through support from the Global Genes Corporate Alliance. The members of the Corporate Alliance support Global Genes' mission and programs, work to meet the vital needs of people with rare diseases, and address inequities they face. To learn more about the Corporate Alliance or how your organization can become a member, join us at globalgenes.org and choose Corporate Alliance under the About tab. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. RNA editing provides a way to address disease-causing mutations and modulate protein function. CoroBio has developed platform technology that it says solves many of the challenges facing current gene therapy and gene editing approaches by harnessing the body's natural RNA editing machinery to make precise, single-base RNA edits. We spoke to Ram Iyer, president and CEO of CoroBio, about the company's RNA editing platform technology, how it works, and its initial focus on applying its approach to treat a rare liver disease. Ram, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me, Danny. It's my pleasure. We're going to talk about RNA editing, CoroBio, and its platform technology, Opera. There's been a lot of excitement around RNA-targeted therapies like antisense oligonucleotides and mRNA. RNA editing offers a new approach to targeting RNA. Where does RNA editing fit into the growing arsenal of genetic medicines, and what can you do with that that provides advantages over existing approaches to RNA-targeted medicines? Well, Danny, thank you for having me here, and uh, also thank you for asking uh, the question on RNA editing and and the interest there. Um, It's been quite a... uh, exciting time um, just thinking about the genomic revolution. Um, At least over the last decade or so, there have been numerous technologies that have come into play um, that have fundamentally uh, changed the lives of patients. Uh, I started my career at a company called Centacore that was then acquired by J&J. And I saw the revolution where the drug that they developed it's called infliximab or Remicade, uh, was utilized for uh, as an antibody therapy for patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, in that case, uh, you saw patients, you know, who were not able to walk to start to walk. Since that time, there have been tremendous antibodies that have come on the market. It's, it's almost like antibodies are par for the course. They're like small molecules. You can make them anytime and go and target uh, pretty much any protein. I feel like we are in a similar revolution for RNA medicines. Uh, It's taken a couple of companies over the last two decades or so uh, to bring approved therapies, specifically when you think about knocking down a protein or silencing a gene or silencing RNA um, and providing that stop signal from a protein standpoint. 
companies like Alnylam and Ionis have spent a lot of time on two separate constructs, one an siRNA that is a double-stranded RNA construct that's chemically modified, um, and Ionis uh, that's a single-strand antisense oligonucleotide. Um, both of them working fundamentally on uh, proteins that are inside a cell um, that have an endogenous function uh, to cut or silence a gene. And both of these companies have co-opted uh, these RNA binding proteins or endogenous enzymes to go and do what it naturally does. So it's really exciting to see, you know, we've seen uh, the approval of patisserin, we've seen the approval of, uh, which is a drug for TPR, um, uh, a therapy that targets the liver uh, using a lipid nanoparticle. Uh, we've seen a second generation or multiple second generation compounds that use what are called conjugates that target a specific receptor. Uh, those are sub-Q uh, therapies. Um, and then we've also seen a RNA therapy for uh, spinal muscular atrophy uh, that has been developed where it has been delivered intrathecally. So over the last two years, there's been a ton, uh, 10 years, there's been a ton of development in RNA medicine. So it's pretty exciting. The reason I was giving this background is, you know, much like the antibodies uh, therapies that have had this wave that have come. I feel like we are there from an RNA medicine standpoint. Um, and so the next wave of that, although we have technologies that can knock down a protein or a silencer gene on, on the RNA level, we haven't seen anything that can activate the RNA or activate the protein or modulate the pathway in a very meaningful way. That's where at least our approach from a Coro standpoint uh, is where RNA editing fits. Uh, RNA editing is a technology where we deliver a synthetic oligonucleotide. Uh, we can co-opt another RNA binding protein called ADAR or adenosine deaminase acting on RNA. And we can redirect that enzyme to go make a specific change on an RNA by changing one of the alphabets uh, on the RNA, which is an adenosine uh, to another alphabet, which is called an inosine. Uh, and that inosine, usually as it goes through a translation process, as it gets converted to protein, gets converted to a guanosine. So think of it as a base edit that doesn't happen on DNA, that doesn't touch your genomic material, but does it transiently on RNA as long as the medicine is present and you can have tremendous biological impact through that pathway. I'll stop there and see if you have any questions. We've seen a lot of advances in both gene therapy and gene editing. How might this offer a way to overcome some of the challenges of existing approaches to gene therapy and gene editing? That's a great question. You know, I, I always go back to, you know, ask any parent, you know, who their favorite child is, if they have two of them, right? Is it, is it, is it your younger one or your older one? And usually the answer is, well, it depends. Each of them provide uh, benefits in different ways and have characteristics and uh, attributes that are very, very different. So to apply that analogy, um, I think the DNA editing technologies, especially from the first generation of the CRISPR-Cas9 systems, um, I guess the second generation of, you know, beam, um, sorry, base editors and prime editors, 
Uh, and then beyond, you're going to start to see many more nucleases that come into bear uh, that can provide additional benefits, almost, you know, inserting whole genes. Um, I, I think that those technologies have a role to play in areas where you know the causal impact of the disease. It's usually restricted to aging or a set of mutations within a gene, and you go in and have an impact by correcting them. That way you go after the fundamental source of that, of that disease. Where it gets interesting is because when you start thinking about larger patient populations where you have an influence of the gene, not an impact uh, or deleterious impact, where it has a confluence of impact given epigenetic factors, environmental factors, um, other risk factors, you see genes play a role not at the genomic level, but more at the transcriptomic and protein level. And that's where RNA editing sort of comes together. It sort of plays a role in areas where you want to modulate protein function. You want to alter uh, the function uh, in a way that could be beneficial. And we do that, again, specifically leveraging genetics. Because if you see over the last decade, think about 23andMe, think about Ancestry, think about all the uh, genetic screening that's being done on a regular basis at hospitals in the Boston area and otherwise, where people are starting to understand and build databases around entire, not just genomic uh, material, but also transcriptomic material and understanding the genetic links to what the phenotypes are and how they manifest that's where RNA editing can really come in, learn from those genetic insights and create that single base edit to influence biology. So I wouldn't treat it as, is RNA editing better than DNA editing? I think both of them have a role in helping patients uh, in meaningful ways I would think about RNA editing as a space where we can go after common complex diseases and perturb the network, biological network in meaningful ways to have clinical benefit. You had referred to ADAR, an enzyme that's critical in, in the editing of RNA. For listeners not familiar with this, can we just take a step back and have you explain what ADAR is and its function in RNA? It's, um, it's a very interesting question. I want to step back and tell you about the genesis of Coro. Um, so uh, one of the founders of Coro is uh, an investigator called Joshua Rosenthal. Um, and he's uh, a professor at Woods Hole um, in the marine biology labs. And he studies cephalopods. And through cephalopods, he studies uh, ion channels and its, uh, and its impact. What he noticed uh, during his, uh, his discovery process was he identified um, and realized that there is this endogenous enzyme called ADAR. Um, in cephalopods, um, what happens is this, this enzyme is overactive in its uh, neuronal system. It gives cephalopods or octopus or squids uh, amazing plasticity around sensing its external environment and making changes uh, to the proteins it produces. Uh, I don't need to tell you about the plasticity that, uh, that, 
that cephalopods and octopus and squid have to change color, to change temperature uh, and sense the environment. Um, so he took those learnings uh, as the CRISPR-Cas9 systems were coming into bear, thought about performing similar changes on RNA that you can do at DNA. And so the enzyme that he, uh, that he was working on is this enzyme that you uh, rightly called as ADAR. Um, this enzyme is present in every cell of our body. It's conserved uh, between lower species uh, in worms all the way through humans. Um, it has two real endogenous functions. The one aspect of it is to identify self from non-self, i.e. if you have a double-stranded virus come in that is inside the cell, it sort of sends out alarm signals uh, to destroy the cell. And in the second half, it provides the ability to create diversity uh, in the proteins uh, that are produced. So when you take a step back through the Human Genome Project, the hope was that we would find 100,000 genes or so because there were 100,000 proteins. But in reality, there were only about 23,000 uh, genes or so. Somewhere between the 23,000 and 100,000, there's a lot of machinery that's happening. And it's enzymes like ADAR that actually cause that diversity. And so this enzyme ADAR is, is essential. It's important for uh, development. Uh, and the beauty, like uh, much like how the siRNAs and antisense oligonucleotides leverage an intracellular protein, ADAR is one such protein uh, that we leverage. Tell me about the OPERA platform that Caro has developed. What is OPERA and how does it work? So OPERA is a slew of um, a compendium of tools is probably the easiest way to define it. Uh, it stands really on four pillars. So the first pillar is um, an understanding of um, this enzyme ADAR and its impact on normal cells as well as how to leverage the enzyme um, to, to create potent drugs. So that's the first pillar. I talked to you about Josh Rosenthal. Um, and so we have a, a slew of scientists that pull together an understanding of how this enzyme reacts with normal function, what kind of uh, RNA it binds, and how it actually interacts with the RNA to make that specific adenosine to inosine edit. So that's pillar number one. I don't think you can um, design good drugs for patients without a good understanding of the enzyme and the tools that are actually going to leverage uh, to make those drugs. The second pillar in opera is around chemistry. And I say chemistry in the context of uh, RNA chemistry. There are, as you know, approved products um, that are on the market that have leveraged uh, this chemistry on uh, modifying RNA to make it more drug-like, more stable, uh, and have the ability to have its um, uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties that give it a drug-like ability. So we leverage the second pillar that we have is both an existing toolbox of chemistries that are utilized in approved products, but also building on a novel toolkit of chemistries that are specific for ADAR-mediated editing that we have developed. 
there are two more pillars I just want to touch on very, very quickly. And uh, Opera really is a compendium of those four pillars. The third pillar is around delivery. Uh, as you know, and uh, having heard your other podcasts, you know, delivery is a big component of uh, oligonucleotide delivery uh, to the right tissue at the right concentration so that you can have the benefit you need. And so we view delivery as fit for purpose, i.e. for a patient population to solve a specific uh, disease pathology. And we leverage what is existing uh, delivery tools rather than reinventing the wheel on oligonucleotide. And then the last component is, we don't talk much about it, but we design our compounds using a combination of computational tools uh, as well as machine learning um, to really get to very potent compounds. Uh, this has been an empirical process uh, since we started because nobody has really developed a rule book for RNA editing. And we've started to write the first few chapters on that by empirically understanding how you design these compounds. So those four components enable us to develop drugs, highly potent drugs, specific for a patient population that we'll go after. And so when you look at our pipeline, the first indication that we're going after is a rare genetic um, uh, liver disease that has manifestations across two uh, tissue types. Um, and we transiently correct a pathogenic mutation. And that drug was uh, the development candidate that we just nominated and presented data last week um, was it was developed through this opera platform. Before we, we talk about your experimental therapy, you used the term base editing earlier. That makes me think of your editor being able to make a very specific type of change, in, in this case, A to I, adenosine to adenosine. Is there the ability to make other changes? And does that just require different enzymes? Or are you limited in what you can do at this point? It's a it's a fascinating question, uh, Danny, because um, you know when you when you think about um, the transcriptome uh, or the genome for that matter, uh, and you comprise of you know these six alphabets that are between the two systems, um, that's about twenty percent or so of your entire transcriptome. That's an adenosine, and so um, depending on the biology that you're trying to go after and knowing that you can go after any adenosine uh, using the system, uh, we can make quite a few changes to impact biology. So although it may seem like a single change is what is being affected, um, there is a lot that we can do from a biological standpoint um, that's going to be very, very meaningful. And so to give you a sense of you know, what that looks like, I touched on um, areas where if you identify a rare genetic mutation that is a guanosine to an adenosine mutation, and we want to repair that back to a guanosine, instead of touching the genetic material, you can actually do it transiently, which has some very specific benefits um, outside of safety. That's something that we can do. But beyond that, just think about an adenosine in a coding region is present in uh, multiple amino acid sequences. And so we have the ability 
to change 12 amino acid sequences from one to another. So just think about that. So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. We have the ability to change the structure and function of proteins uh, in very, very meaningful ways. And so that really opens up the possibilities of going after disease biology um, that has never been done before um, uh, the advent of this technology. I, I think early on when Moderna was there, you would always hear Stefan uh, talk about we're going to make the cells create its own medicines. And, you know, it's been outside of the vaccine space. You're starting to see more and more development in the mRNA space. But there are challenges around delivery and challenges around um, chronic dosing um, that are not yet solved. But using RNA editing, we can create those designer proteins um, that can really change its function. So, yes, we are limited by making a single adenosine to inosine change, but that doesn't limit us in terms of the biology that we can go after in meaningful ways uh, to impact the clinical pathology. This technology has implications for both rare and common diseases. You talked a little bit about delivery. It's not surprising to see you start with a, a, a disease of the liver. Was that selection in part because of delivery challenges, or are you able to target other parts of the body as well? Danny, I'm an engineer by training. I work in a very linear fashion, uh, for, for better or worse. Um, I've been in uh, healthcare for uh, a little over two decades. I think the most important thing is to um, deliver the right drug uh, for patients that you can have a meaningful impact on. And so when you think about the possibilities of this technology, I've been part of many companies uh, and I've seen many companies try to achieve too many things at the same time, changing too many variables. And so for me, keeping that mindset, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a, I will, I will tell you a little bit more about the indication in a bit, but it's a disease that is manifested by a gene that's secreted or a protein that's secreted from the liver. It is a pathogenic uh, mutation. So it's a G to A variant. Um, it's a very heterogeneous patient population. You have mild patients all the way to very severe patients. And the severe patients have both liver cirrhosis, where they may need a liver transplant, as well as uh, um, uh, lung damage that may need uh, a lung transplant. So when you think about this entire spectrum of heterogeneous disease, um, we wanted to focus on one aspect of it, which is changing that adenosine in the liver back to a guanosine transient. We know we can target the liver from a delivery standpoint with multiple modalities, both from a lipid nanoparticle as well as through conjugates. We know that it's a single point mutation that we need to reverse. And we know that the activity uh, of this drug will be seen very quickly because the secretion of this biomarker of, of the protein in and of itself can be detected in serum. And so you put all of those three together, you've now validated a novel technology 
that can have a vast benefit for a large number of patients, but you're actually showing that the technology works by only changing one variable, which is converting that adenosine uh, back to a guanosine from a protein standpoint. So the idea is to take as little risk as possible to provide a drug uh, to patients that will meaningfully change their lives. How is this condition generally treated today and, and what options exist for patients? What's, what's their prognosis? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. So I was at the education session. Um, there is an alpha one foundation that looks after the, looks after the uh, uh, benefit of the patients. They provide a lot of resources, uh, both from an education standpoint, as well as, you know, connecting the dots uh, in the context of therapies. Um, so when I was there at this uh, patient education ses uh, session, you can see the spectrum of patients that show up and the physicians that show up. And so when you think about the disease, um, you know, just to step back for a second, this point mutation uh, occurs in a gene called serpin A1. And that serpin A1 gene is, uh, results in the secretion of a protein called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. It's primarily secreted in the liver. Um, and its benefit is really to stop overactivity of certain white blood cells. And so when you have this point mutation, this protein starts to misfold and starts to aggregate within the liver. And when it starts to aggregate within the liver, it's, it's a little bit like plaque. Uh, it builds up and builds up and builds up over time and crystallizes. And the liver, as you know, is a regenerative uh, uh, organ and so it's fighting against these plaques to, uh, to resolve itself. But over time, these plaques uh, lead to death of the liver cells and then leads to fibrosis. And because, these, because this protein aggregates within the liver cells, it's not available to do its job outside, which primarily is manifested in the lung. So if you have an attack, in the lung and uh, a viral attack or otherwise, you have this huge inflow of white blood cells. It comes and eats up this pathogen, but then it needs a signal to say stop. And this protein is the one that tells the signal to stop. And so when it's not present, the white blood cells don't know any better and start eating lung tissue. And so because of that, now you end up with two issues, both in the liver as well as in the lung. Obviously, this manifest. If you drink a lot, you ha you end up with worse outcomes. Um, if you end up with smoking, you end up having worse outcomes in the lung. And so the entire spectrum uh, is very heterogeneous. And so you have some patients, even though the genetic mutation exists with liver disease, some patients that exist with lung disease, and some patients with both. And the current standard of care really is a band aid which is a once a week infusion of this protein in and of itself. So think about, um, uh, you know, blood donations, that blood donations, you get plasma pooled together. Um, there are companies that extract that uh, this alpha one protein from pool plasma, repackage it and infuse uh, on a weekly basis. That is the current standard of care. And that is specifically only to help with the lung manifestations. 
so that you can tell the white blood cells to stop eating its own tissue. There is really nothing for preventing the liver manifestations and there is nothing that really helps both at the same time with one drug product, which is what we are trying to do. Well, let, let's talk about your experimental therapy, which is KRRO110. What is it and, and how does it work? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Um, so as I mentioned, it's a, um, it's a synthetic oligonucleotide that we've encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle. We're delivering it to the liver cells. Um, within the liver cells, this oligonucleotide binds the mRNA, uh, that's serpin A1, attracts the enzyme ADAR and changes that adenosine that is a mutation and mutated version to an inosine. And because of that inosine change, the protein gets corrected. The corrected protein, which is called the M protein, gets secreted. And we have shown in our preclinical animal models that we are able to correct that protein at very high levels, i.e., if you look at these mouse models, we can show that greater than 80% of the circulating amount is the corrected protein. And we're also able to show a lot of the protein that gets stuck within these cells is actually not stuck anymore and is out in circulation and available for the lung to do its job. And so we hope over the next um, uh, uh, next a year to 18 months, as we go to the clinic, we're able to show that this investigational drug with a single dose is able to provide the same similar benefits that we've seen in preclinical models. So by giving this therapy as an IV infusion, somewhere between once in three weeks to once a month, we are able to functionally correct the RNA and provide the corrected protein in circulation that will help both the liver as well as the lung. And what's the development path forward? So we publicly said um, we are a public company. We got listed uh, in November of uh, last year. Uh, seems like a lifetime ago. Um, and we've said publicly that we would have a regulatory filing um, in one jurisdiction, at least by the end of this year. And we will initiate clinical studies and we'll have or intend to have data in mid to the late uh, half of 2025. You mentioned Coro's public. It, it went public through a reverse merger and was successful in raising $117 million concurrent with that. Given what public markets for biotech stocks were at the time, what was the thinking in going public? It's a great question. I think the um, when you think about the development needs for this drug, because you would imagine, you know, as we started to see the data come through, we started to see that this has the potential to be a best-in-class compound. We saw that it had in preclinical models an ability to resolve both the liver through histology experiments, we are able to show that the aggregates are not there. And we are able to show that the uh, amount in circulation is very, very high and better than anybody has ever shown. Uh, so much so that in one week, 
we're able to see approximately 50 micromolars of this protein in circulation that others have shown it takes a very long time to get there. And so our investors saw that, the internal folks have, uh, as a management team, we saw that we knew we needed to raise sufficient capital to get to the other side of clinical data. There were many ways to do it. We had multiple options at the table, um, but at the end, you know, raising and having a strong balance sheet north of uh, 170 million to get to that clinical endpoint, as well as have other programs move forward, um, this was the, uh, the best option at the table. I would say that, you know, in, when you, in my prior companies, we've had fantastic data and we were in a situation where we needed a whole lot of capital to prosecute on it. Eventually we had good outcomes. We got bought out, uh, but we didn't want to be in a situation where that was the case, knowing that we had a drug on our hand or a potential drug on our hand. And so that's the reason why, you know, as you know, money is the lifeblood for biotech companies, especially one uh, with a novel technology. Uh, and so those are the reasons why we could gain sufficient capital to really focus on getting clinical data and show that we have one, a platform, and two, a potential therapy for, for these patients. And how far will existing cash take you and what's the plan for raising additional capital? So this will take us uh, into 2026. Um, additional capital raises is, uh, is always an ongoing uh, discussion internally as well as with our board. Um, I think over the next two years, I think our fundamental focus is execution and showing that we can generate the data that we think we can. And so that will drive um, the next set of financing. Um, there is a you know, multiple opportunities in the context of non-dilutive financing as we have a platform that can go after biology in a very unique way. Um, I think we have options to think about, you know, partnerships with select individual companies that have the same mindset of developing therapeutics uh, the way that we have. So long-winded way of saying, um, you know, uh, it will be evaluated on, a, on an ongoing basis, Danny. Um, and depending on when our next product is announced, you know, we'll consider you know, how that uh, feeds into the capital needs to take the first program all the way through approval. Ram Iyer, President and CEO of Coro Bio. Ram, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it, Danny. Thank you for the time and uh, um, thank you for reaching out. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.